You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 47 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited to welcome to the podcast for the first time, Dan Walsh, a senior highway factors investigator in the NTSB Office of Highway Safety, to talk about the January 2020 investigation of a crash near Mount Pleasant Township in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Today, uh, like Stephanie said, we're going to be discussing the Mount Pleasant Township uh, crash. But before we get into those details, what we always like to do is allow our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves to our listeners. And Dan, I'm especially uh, excited to have you on the podcast today because for two reasons. First of all, you've never been on the podcast. But secondly, um, you are one of our uh, remote or in the field, uh, full-time telework employees. And so we rarely get to interact with you. And I'm very much looking forward to this discussion to learn more about you and to share your information with our listeners. So to get us started, would you give us a a brief rundown of your background, um, how you arrived at the NTSB, and also if you can incorporate how you became an expert on uh, highway factors and, and crash reconstruction? Well, first, let me say Thanks for having me, Stephanie and Leah. Um, you both do a fantastic job in putting the behind-the-scene podcast together. Um, my background and journey to the NTSB, I have 17 years prior to the board in the private and public sector, uh, working at various consultant engineering companies in the private sector and state and local governments in the public sector. Um, I have been with the board approximately 20 years, uh, working in the uh, Office of Highway Safety. Um, I became an expert uh, in crash reconstruction. Um, I'm a registered professional engineer in the states of Maryland and Texas. Um, I received my Bachelor's of Science in Civil Engineering from Texas A&M University and my Master's of Science in Civil Engineering um, from the University of Maryland. I I, uh, came to the board because I wanted to join the premier agency in the world that investigates crashes and advocates for safety. And so... Um, so you and I have that in common that we have both uh, lived or, or spent some of our time both in Maryland and in Texas, because as we were chatting before, I shared that I lived in Dallas for about three years uh, before coming to, to the Maryland area. Absolutely, Leah. And I spent uh, 10 years in the uh, Washington, D.C. area working for um, Montgomery County, Maryland, in fact. Oh. Um, and um, Montgomery County, Maryland, is one of the most progressive counties uh, in the country in terms of its adequate public facilities ordinance. Um, And uh, they're very progressive in terms of uh, protecting environmental uh, issues such as uh, wetlands and parklands. And in fact, um, I worked on preserving right-of-way for the inter-county connector, which is uh, a... uh, a toll facility that serves Montgomery and Prince George's County. Right. Um, yeah, and, <laughs> we are familiar with that area. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so 
preserving that right away, Montgomery County was very progressive in terms of um, reserving the right away for for decades. And um, as a result of that uh, reservation and preservation process, um, the intercounty connector was constructed. It would never have been constructed if um, if the right of way was not reserved, because development would have would have occurred within the right of way. Wow. Well, I drive on the ICC frequently, and I love having uh, back background knowledge of different things. So now I have new facts to share with friends and family whenever we're driving on that roadway. So thank you for that. Yeah. Dan, since uh, we're still talking about your background, um, Leah and I and some other uh, members of the NTSB team had the opportunity just a couple of weeks ago to attend the Lifesavers Highway Safety Conference. Um, and we had the opportunity to interact with quite a few engineering students who are really just kind of getting started and trying to figure out how they want to use those skills that they're learning in um, the highway safety transportation area. Can you just tell us a little bit how about how you um, got into, you know, looking at road factors and, and roadway engineering as as your area? Well, um, my field, as as I said, uh, was civil engineering, both my my bachelor's and my master's uh, degrees. Um, I went into um, roadway engineering immediately uh, after graduating from Texas A&M University, both in the uh, public and private sector, really, for, for 17 years, mm-hmm. um, designing roadways. Um, as well as um, working for uh, state and local governments uh, in terms of um, uh, preparing roadway uh, roadway d- designs and and actually um, uh, getting my professional engineering degree and uh, actually stamping and signing uh, roadway design plans. So I've been in the the field. Uh, quite a long time, both in the uh, private and public sector. And I think that's helped me tremendously in terms of um, the crash investigations that we've uh, investigated at the NTSB. Mm -hmm. And just from just from that information alone, I I, uh, know that you are absolutely the perfect person that we are interviewing for for today's uh, discussion about this, uh, this collision, um, just for the the background on the roadway design and and we'll be getting a lot into speeding and and uh, that safety issue. So why don't we uh, transition over into that? Um, in just this past February, we completed the investigation uh, into the January 5th, like Stephanie said, January 5th, 2020, multi-vehicle crash between a motor coach carrying 59 passengers, two trucks towing semi-trailers, a car and a third truck near Mount Pleasant Township, Pennsylvania. So Dan, would you please summarize the events of the crash and what was determined to be the probable cause of the crash? Certainly. Um, The the Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania crash was a multi-vehicle crash um, in which five people died and 50 people were were injured. Um, The board found that excessive speeding caused the multi-vehicle crash. Um, for instance, a motor coach was excessively speeding at 77 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour advisory speed zone. Um, a UPS one truck was excessively speeding at 71 miles per hour 
in a 55 mile per hour advisory speed zone. And a UPS truck was excessively speeding at 69 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour advisory speed zone. And when you say uh, advisory speed zone, can you talk a little bit about what that means? Certainly. Um, The board report um, talks about three different types of speeds. and the, the, there are regulatory speeds, um, advisory speeds, and uh, design speeds. And you really can think of those as a hierarchy of speeds. And at the top top of the hierarchy is the, the regulatory speed limit, which is the maximum speed applicable to a section of highway established by law. And next is the design speed, which is generally associated with horizontal curves. And it's the maximum speed that vehicles can travel based on driver comfort, uh, give, given the centrifugal forces on a vehicle. And generally, that is calculated by a formula that uh, accounts for the curve radius, the super elevation rate, and the side friction demand. And then at the bottom of the hierarchy um, is the advisory speed. And the advisory speed is a is a recommended safe speed for all vehicles traveling along a horizontal curb. Um, and it's generally understood as a minimum of five miles per hour below the design speed uh, okay. to account to account for a factor of safety. And so the advisory speed is not an arbitrary speed limit, you know, developed by an engineer or planner, uh, but it's developed through a factor of safety that accounts for the curve radius, super elevation, and side friction demand. Okay. Before we go further into the speeding aspect, this collision occurred January 5th, 2020, and crashes occur daily, obviously. Um, Multi-vehicle crashes uh, occur probably daily. And I am curious, what factors affected the decision um, for your team to launch and investigate this crash? And also, how soon after the crash occurred did the investigative team launch and arrive on scene? Um, The crash occurred at 3.30 a.m. on January 5th, 2020. Um, The team with uh, Chair Hamadi launched on the same day of the crash with investigators arriving the same day and the following day. Um, The factors affecting the decision to launch was excessive speed. Okay, so... In the in the decision, um, there there was indicators in in advance that speed might be a factor, and that was kind of the deciding point. That's correct, Dan. Like we said when we started, that we really are going to dive into the speed issue, um, and I'm already ready to jump there based on just you talking about the different speed limit setting. Uh, But before we do that, we know that there were a couple of other um, safety issues that were identified in the investigation. Can you just give us a a quick overview of of kind of that holistic picture of the safety issues that you all identified through the investigation before we jump right back into speeding? Absolutely. Um, The the safety issues um, identified in the crash really focused on uh, broadly uh, implementing a comprehensive strategy to eliminating speeding-related crashes, and secondly, um, requiring collision avoidance and connected vehicle technologies on all vehicles. Um, so the recommendations really uh, address those two broad, broad areas. 
Sure. Yeah. And obviously, uh, both of those things are on the, the speeding uh, safety item and the collision avoidance are on the most wanted list of transportation safety improvements. And uh, Stephanie and I plan to have a podcast dedicated to collision avoidance in the future. But today we're going to focus on the speeding aspect. So we know that speeding increases the likelihood of a crash as well as severity of injuries. What were some of the factors related to the speeding in the Mount Pleasant uh, Township crash? Very good question. Um, you know, uh, some of the factors related to speeding, um, I can pinpoint to a speed study that we requested uh, that the turnpike the turnpike conducted a speed study at the request of NTSB investigators. and um, the the speed study was conducted at the curve in which the crash occurred and at two other curves in the westbound lanes that had similar roadway characteristics. And the tests were conducted under two conditions. Um, the first condition advised motorist about an ongoing speed study. And the second condition did not advise motorists about the speed study. Mm. And what was alarming is that the speed study results revealed only slight differences in each condition, um, producing speed ranges in which motorists were traveling 10 to 25 miles per hour above the advisory 55 mile per hour speed. Mm. Um, and so th the results revealed that the motoring public is is not paying attention to the advisory speeds, um, even with law enforcement present and a signage and signage advi advising of a speed study. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, so, Dan, one of the things that um, that stands out to me when you're talking about regulatory speed limit, advisory speed limit, and then de design speed limit, um, and it seems like maybe they're all kind of in conflict with each other. Um, just listening, you know, the advisory <laughs> speed limit is, um, you know, is just that advisory. And I feel like, you know, when you're looking at safety, if you've decided that the regulatory speed in a particular location is is too excessive for, for the conditions of, like we're talking about here, a curve, why is it just advisory? Why wouldn't it be a change in the regulatory speed um, for that area? That's a great question. And it, it does become confusing when you're talking about these three different speeds. Um, and uh, we tried to make that um, as clear as we could um, in the board report, but certainly um, the design speeds uh, for the horizontal curves on the turnpike that are set at 55, 60, and 65 miles per hour um, were safe. Um, it's when we talk about the regulatory speed um, at 70 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's and that's uh, really the issue. Um, and I would say, you know, if the 70 mile per hour regulatory speed limit was lowered, um, it would help motorists to reduce their speed while entering horizontal curves on the turnpike. Um, the sure. turnpike, the turnpike has approximately 150 horizontal curves um, covering 51 miles. Um, because the turnpike is located in mountainous terrain, 
and it was one of the first turnpikes built in the country, that is why it has so many horizontal curves. Mm. I would I wouldn't say it's typical of interstates throughout the country, but it certainly is um, is certainly is typical of 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 the turnpike in this location. Um, the turnpike also has I'm sorry also no, has a, approximately a thousand fifty four miles of straight sections where the posted regulatory speed limit is 70 miles per hour. So, um, you know, it, it is my belief, and I would say that once the 85th percentile speed, and I know we're going to be discussing this later, mm-hmm. is de-emphasized um, in FHWA's tools for setting appropriate speed limits, uh, it is my belief that it will lead to lower regulatory speed limits on our nation's highways. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to interject here um, for a moment. Um, you're explaining the roadway and describing the the curves and everything. And for our listeners who might be more visual learners like I am, I encourage everyone to go and watch on the YouTube, the NTSB YouTube channel. The board meeting is online and uh, Dan and his fellow investigators have um, presentations that have a lot of visuals that really kind of uh give a, I mean, a literal picture of what these curves looked like. And when I was watching it, all I could think of is like, that curve doesn't seem so significant, so severe that, um, that I would feel out of control. However, what I wasn't taking into consideration was, first of all, I've never driven on that roadway, but second of all, that the conditions of the roadway um, were wet and it was the middle of the night. Um, and so that brings me to my question about, you know, when it comes to wet roadway conditions, how does that, how does that really impact, um, the speed of a vehicle is, you know, is it going to make things even more dangerous or if the conditions were dry, would the speeding, uh, have been as dangerous, I suppose? Uh, excellent question. Um, yes, it, it it does matter. Uh, wet weather does play an important role in terms of the friction between the pavement surface and the tires. And in fact, uh, we contracted with an outside firm to conduct pavement friction tests in the westbound lanes mm. uh, of the turnpike near the crash site. Um, and again, as as you indicated, the purpose of the friction uh, pavement friction is to determine the resistance offered uh, by the pavement surface to the tires when a vehicle breaks. Mm-hmm. The outside consultant firm uh, used uh, both a ribbed and smooth tire for the friction testing, and and we conducted the test at various various speeds, 40, 50, 55, 60, and 70 miles per hour mm. under wet surface conditions. And the the results revealed the friction tests um, were in good condition, uh, with friction numbers well above the guidance for any investigation or action. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at at speeds um, and spe- specifically on the turnpike, would you say that you know based on on your um, investigation here and then just with the speed studies and the other. Um, pieces of information that you all were able to gather, would you, would you say that the 70 mile per hour um, speed limit on the turnpike is is a safe speed for the turnpike? I would say that if the 70 mile per hour regulatory speed limit was lowered, 
it would it would help motors to reduce their speed while entering horizontal curves on the turnpike. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then again, it, it is my belief um, that once the 85th percentile speed is de-emphasized um, in FHWA's tools, uh, U.S. Limits 2 and National Cooperative Highway Research Program 966, and this was a recommendation that we made uh, to FHWA as part of the Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania crash, that it will lead to uh, lower regulatory speed limits on our nation's highways, and and that's mm-hmm. critical. We have to we have to do that um, because of the fatalities that we're seeing as a result of speeding, um, the 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 NHTSA data that we're seeing from 2019 to 2020 and the increase of fatalities as a result of speeding, this this absolutely has to be done. Yeah, and just to emphasize um, that the 85th percentile safety recommendation is one of the safety recommendations connected to the speeding safety item on the most wanted list of transportation safety improvements. So, um, the, you know, we are in full support of that uh, that change taking place. Um, I want to go a little bit further on that 70 mile per hour uh, speed limit. In the board meeting, um, it was revealed that uh, the, the 70 mile per hour limit has not always been 70 miles per hour on, on the turnpike. Can you talk a little bit about that and when and, when and why it changed? Absolutely. The 70 mile per hour speed limit was implemented um, by the uh, Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission in May of 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, the speed limit was 65 miles per hour. Um, The reason that the uh, Turnpike Commission increased, they they conducted an assessment report uh, prior to raising the speed limit that looked at the practices of other of other states as uh, um, as well as uh, crash clusters and heavy vehicle congestion. So they based their the increase um, of of five miles per hour, raising it to seventy mile per hour, based on that assessment report. Um, again, um, the FHWA tools. U.S. Limits 2 and NCHRP 966 that are available on FHWA's website for setting appropriate speed limits. We, in fact, inputted the turnpike roadway characteristics into those two FHWA tools, and it revealed a 70-mile-per-hour speed limit. Mm -hmm. So that is why it's so critical that we de-emphasize the 85th percentile speed in both of those tools. And it is my belief, once we do that, it will lower um, the regulatory speed limits uh, on our nation's highways. Sure. And since we've we've brought it up a few times, we'll we'll go ahead and jump into that. But I, I just want to go back for a minute and just talk about the statistics um, looking at, like Dan, like you said, we know that the the fatality numbers um, increased, but in 2020, we saw a 17% increase in speeding-related fatalities over 2019. And then, unfortunately, we know that we saw another um, spike in 2021. So 
we really are at a at a critical time where we're talking about the safe system approach and how we're looking at um, you know the the countermeasures and how we're addressing the highway fatality and crash problem, um, recognizing that that speeding is a pillar of the safe system approach and certainly. Um, like we said when we started, that we know that speed um, increases your likelihood of being in a crash and then also the severity of injuries. So looking at how speed limits are currently set, and we've mentioned a couple times the the 85th percentile. Dan, can you just explain what that is? Certainly. Um, the 85th percentile speed is the speed at which 85% of the vehicle traffic is traveling either at or below a certain speed. And um, the reason we need to de-emphasize the uh, 85th percentile speed in both FHWA's tools is it's been in practice since the 1940s. Um, it has shown undesirable results, such as driving faster than the posted speed, and it may not be valid under scrutiny. Um, so the 85th percentile speed is an outdated form of obtaining speed study results. And as you said, uh, it is not advocated through the safe system approach. One thing that I just want to, um, that I, I always find, find amazing. Um, I've been the, I've been the lead advocate on the speeding, uh, safety item for the most wanted list for the last few years. And I gave a presentation with my colleague, Ivan Chung, who had a set of, <clears throat> um, maps of the United States over the course of a few years. And it showed by color, um, the maximum speed limit or the speed limits, uh, for the state, uh, and you could see over time, like the first slide, you know, there are not many states that have speed limits above 70 miles per hour. And then five or 10 years later, you can see maybe 10 of those states now have speed limits at 75 miles per hour. Um, and then another five or 10 years after that, another, you know, 15 or so, I, I have the numbers wrong, but maybe on the website, we can direct listeners to to these slides, but it's just fascinating to see how it's become a trend across the country for these states to just increase their speed limits. And I believe it's based on this 85 percentile. And like, where is that limit that it stops? If everyone suddenly is driving 75 miles per hour, then is it safe to set it at 75 miles per hour? But then a few years later, you see that people com are comfortable at 75 miles per hour, but then push it to 80 miles per hour. And I believe there are a few states that have their speed limits on, you know, on inner uh, interstates that are at 80 or 85 miles per hour. And Texas, Dan, <clears throat> excuse me, Texas might be one of those states. Am I am I incorrect? No, you're correct. You're exactly correct. I'm so glad you raised this point. It, it really is a cyclical cycle yeah. um, because you're raising the 85th percentile speed. Um, and, you know, some states, you know, Texas was one. I There are, there are a few other states as well, you know, that have raised their uh, speed limits to to 85 miles per hour in, mm -hmm. in in certain certain areas, and so it's a cyclical cycle that's based on uh, this 85th percentile speed. And the board has recommended uh, specifically um, as part of the notice of proposed amendments on the manual on uniform traffic control devices, mm -hmm. which was um, 
really made as part of the 2017 safety research report reducing speeding related crashes involving passenger vehicles the board recommended to FHWA to remove guidance for speed limits to be posted within five miles per hour of the 85th percentile speed. Mm. Um, and so that would address the cyclical cycle um, that uh, that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Sure, Dan. When when we look at at setting speed limits, and all you know, I think most everyone is in agreement that the 85th percentile is not the way that we should should we should be doing it. But how should we be making decisions as it relates to to speeds? Um, excellent question. I you know we should be making decisions on speed limits based on the safe system systems approach. Um, as we talked about earlier, you know, and and the safe system approach would include de-emphasizing the 85th percentile speed in both FHWA's tools, U.S. Limits 2 and NCHRP 966 that are currently available on FHWA's website for setting appropriate speed limits. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it, it it is my belief that once we de-emphasize the 85th percentile speed in both of these tools, it will lead to lower regulatory speed limits on our nation's highways. Sure. Dan, thinking of the, the safe system approach and, and the approach being that it's a shared responsibility and that you have the right people at the table when you're making decisions, when you think about um, designing roads and, and identifying the safe speed on, on roads, who ideally would you um, encourage communities or states to have at the table um, when they're when they're looking at that I'm I'm so glad that you that you asked this uh, this question and I want I want to if I could I want to to mention chair Hamadi's name mm-hmm. uh, uh, she's been so instrumental in this area um, you know when she talks about speeding at board hearings and keynote speeches, uh, to industry partners and and podcasts on the safe system approach, um, she's at the forefront of this issue, and she speaks so eloquently on this topic. Um, I think we need to stop thinking about efficient movement of goods and people, um, mm-hmm. and concentrate on safety first. Uh, mm-hmm. We need to bring more people to the table when we design our transportation transportation system rather than engineers and planners. Um, you know, we need to include vulnerable road users, such as bicyclists and pedestrians, and all road users of the transportation system. Um, and, and also, we need to bring law enforcement to, to the table that provide countermeasures to speeding uh, that are enforceable. Mm-hmm. Thinking um, just as you're talking about this and and reflecting back on on your background and your experience in designing roadways, was any of this? And and again, I'm just going to preface this by saying the safe system approach is a newer um, it's a newer approach to road safety. Um, but were any of these concepts kind of discussed when you were in the design process of like of the ICC or any other? the inter-county connector, inter-county connector um, for those of you that don't live in the D.C. area. Um, but were any of these discussions of, of bringing in the different uh, different road users and the different parties and the different, you know, 
different uh, individuals. Was that included in in your experience? Certainly, it was with the intercounty connector. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Montgomery County is one of the most progressive counties in the nation mm-hmm. in in terms of its adequate public facilities ordinance and its the way that it conducts its master plans and sector plans um, and uh, coordinates with local and state governments and brings quite literally everybody to the table when mm-hmm. it makes when it makes master planning decisions and transportation uh, decisions. Um, and not only um, the uh, what I discussed earlier in terms of vulnerable road users and uh, law enforcement, but it brings the environmental aspect uh, of, of constructing roadways as well to the table. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, all of those players have been involved um, with with the intercounty connector now i i i i don't know of other other areas of the country that are as progressive as montgomery mm-hmm. county but mm-hmm. certainly the intercounty connector had all of those uh, players at the table in in looking at that this is a facility that's been on on the master plan for literally decades mm. Well, perhaps any engineers um, and planners listening to the podcast right now, if they are looking for a, uh, a resource or a lessons learned or some sort of uh, potential success story, they can either uh, look to Montgomery County's intercounty connector or they can uh, reach out to you, Dan. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> A couple of times you've mentioned uh, federal highways resources and guidance um, to states and communities for um, road design and, and speed setting. Can you share a little bit about um, the proven safety measures as it relates to speeding that federal highway recommends? Absolutely. Um, you know, federal guidance uh, as it relates to um, road design and speeds can be found on FHWA's website um, under proven safety countermeasures to speeding and um, um, FHWA's recently released complete streets design model are are excellent resources um, to consult um, regarding road design and speeding. Dan, I want to pivot a little bit to technology now. as we know, technology in vehicles can play a, a big role in addressing speed and the speeding problem. And the NTSB has made several recommendations related to speed limiting technology, uh, safety cameras, et cetera. But can you talk a little bit about the recommendation for speed management technology that we made because of the Mount Pleasant, Mount Pleasant investigation? Certainly. Um, in the Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania crash, uh, the board made two recommendations to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, one was a new recommendation to seek authority to allow speed safety cameras to be used on the Pennsylvania Turnpike outside of active work zones. And a uh, second recommendation was a reiteration of a recommendation to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania authorizing state and local agencies to use automated speed enforcement. Um, Another recommendation was made to the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission um, 
to implement the use of variable speed limit signs or other similar technology to adjust statutory speeds based on real-time information regarding weather and road conditions. Um, in terms of other investigations, um, I'd like to mention the 2017 safety research report uh, reducing speeding-related crashes involving passenger vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the board made recommendations uh, to the Federal Highway Administration to, uh, and this was in 2017, to revise the manual on uniform traffic control devices to incorporate the safe system approach for urban roads to strengthen protection for vulnerable road users. Um, and also, as part of that report, uh, it recommended to um, states without automated speed enforcement to authorize state and local agencies to use automated speed enforcement. Mm-hmm. Dan, when looking at the automated speed enforcement, and I'm just thinking of placement of cameras, and I'm like Leah and I mentioned, we're in the D.C. area, so um, I the the roads I drive, you you see the the safety cameras placed, and usually they're um, they're cameras that can be moved around. And it just made me think of ignition interlocks on cars, right? We, mm-hmm. we know that when they're on the cars, they're effective. Um, but then for some, when you take them off, then it, you don't have that long-term effect of, of changing behavior. So it just made me think of safety cameras and their placement and how sometimes they are in the same place. And, you know, I see drivers where they know the camera's coming, they slow down, but then as soon as they pass the field of, you know, ticketing, <laughs> then, you know, this the speed increases. And so when, when thinking about using um, safety camera technology, is there, do you have advice uh, for for things like placement or how to, to ensure that they really are changing long-term behaviors or improving safety for a longer period of time than just that, you know, little bit of space where people know to anticipate them? Um, the, great question. And, you know, the the speed safety cameras um, really fall into three, three categories. Um, uh, the fixed units, which I, you know, which you mentioned, um, that are the single stationary cameras. Um, and then there's point-to-point speed safety cameras that that are that are multiple cameras over a over a certain distance. Um, and then the third category is is mobile units in which speed safety cameras are are actually attached um, uh, to a vehicle. And and I will say that um, and and this was brought up at the board hearing um, uh, as well that you know speed safety cameras have been very effective in Europe and around the world in reducing speeds. Mm-hmm. In Brazil, um, for instance, they have over 18,000 speed safety cameras. In Italy, they have over 10,000 speed safety cameras. In the United Kingdom, they have approximately 6,900 speed safety cameras. And here in the United States, we have a, a little over 6,000 speed yeah. safety cameras. Yeah. So they've been, they've been very effective in Europe and around the world um, in reducing speeding. 
I have to draw the parallel right now um, with the difference in Europe and the United States. Uh, what you're what you're talking about just reminds me of the lower blood alcohol concentration limit in other countries in Europe around the world that have a 0.05 BAC or lower, and they have a much lower rate of impaired driving crashes and fatalities. But in the United States, it's so much higher, and we have a 0.08 BAC. Um, I could not resist just making that point that, you know, perhaps Europe has something going on that's, you know, that's smart and we can look to on, you know, a few different road safety um, issues. And since we brought up alcohol, I was going to say, unfortunately, we know that alcohol impaired driving and speeding are a huge um, paired problem on the nation's mm-hmm. roads, too. So um, can't can't ignore uh, the relevance of of bringing up alcohol when you're talking about speeding. Right. Dan, the safe system approach and also speeding are two safety items that are highlighted on the current most wanted list. And we should say that there are five highway related items and, and these are two. And this crash certainly highlights both of both of those safety items. Can you just talk a little bit more about the safe system approach and and why, like we mentioned, that speeding that it should be a no surprise that speeding is a pillar of a safe system is the one of the pillars of the safe system approach? Thank you, thank you for this for that question. Um, the safe system approach includes the following five elements: um, safe road users, safe vehicles, safe speeds safe roads, and post-crash care. Safe speed is centered on the approach that humans are unlikely to survive high-speed crashes. And reducing speeds can accommodate human injury tolerances in three ways. Um, Reducing impact forces, providing additional time for drivers to stop, and improving visibility. And um, this is apparent. Um, in the Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania crash, um, in which five people died and 50 people were injured. And um, we mentioned the the NHTSA uh, uh, fatality uh, increase. Mm -hmm. It is so important to reduce speeding because of the increase in fatalities from 2019 to 2020. And I will mention the the numbers because I think it's so important. In 2019, we lost 36,355 people. Um, in 2020, we lost 38,824 people in terms of total traffic fatalities. That's an increase of 6.8%. In 2019, we lost 9,900. 9,592 people due to speeding-related crashes. In 2020, we lost 11,258 people due to fatalities in speeding-related crashes. That's a 17 point, that's a 17% increase. Mm -hmm. That is unacceptable, and that is why it is so important to reduce speeding. Absolutely. We are getting to the end of our podcast, and I just, I've 
really enjoyed this conversation with you, Deanne. Um, I've learned a lot about you and I've learned uh, a lot more about the the investigation um, and just speeding in general and the safe system approach. So before we close out, I want to give you an opportunity to have to share any final thoughts um, with our audience about speeding, about the safe system, about this investigation. Uh, the floor is yours. Well, I want to say thank you very much, Stephanie and Leah, for for having me. Uh, it has been a pleasure discussing this topic with you. Um, it is very important that we reduce speeding uh, to eliminate serious and fatal injuries on our nation's highways. And and I thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Dan. Stephanie, do you have any final thoughts? I, I have a final question, Dan, and I'm sorry that we just like gave you the opportunity to wrap up, but I don't want to miss an opportunity to just emphasize the fact that NTSB investigations, we take a safe system approach, a safe system comprehensive look. And so I think when you when you look at this crash, it would have been easy for us to just say, oh, yep, a speeding crash and just you know, kind of kind of leave it at that and not and not look at it in the way that you all did. But can you just describe a little bit just that comprehensive multiple multidisciplinary approach that the highway office our other offices as well but specifically highway takes um, to make sure that we really are looking at the system the road system and not just you know the driver the, the final the final um you know action that that happened right before a crash occurred thank you thank you for the question and we really do look at the five pillars in all of our crash investigations um, in terms of the safe system approach of safe road users, safe feet, safe vehicles, safe speeds, safe roads, and post-crash care. And we do it through our different disciplines uh, that we have in terms of highway factors and vehicle factors, uh, survival factors, uh, and motor carrier operations. All of all of those um, entities look at the safe system approach, and it it's it's just we have to we have to do that. Um, we we encourage uh, other agencies, both at uh, the state and local governments, to take that same approach, um, and it's vital that we do that. Uh, it's 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 um, it's imperative that we do that in order to uh, reduce speeding and eliminate serious and fatal injuries on our on our nation's highways. Thanks, Dan. Well, I um, again, I want to thank Dan uh, for joining us today. This has been a really fantastic discussion. And um you know, my my closing thought is that we put these safety items on the most wanted list um, because they are critical and because we have a solution. And uh, and our solution are are presented in the form of recommendations. Uh, we cannot force anyone to take action on them, but we really do hope that people will take it into consideration. These are uh safety items that have been researched, investigated, um, based in based in science, based in um, evidence collection. And um, our investigators, as you can, you know, as you've heard from Dan, uh, go to great lengths to figure out what it was that actually caused these crashes and uh, 
they work very hard at crafting recommendations that will be um, that will be impactful and that will save lives if they are implemented. And so, if anyone is listening that uh, has been considering their speed uh, programs or uh, lowering or raising their speed limits, please, please take a look at these reports, take a look at our most wanted list um, and take into consideration the, the safety of the road users versus how, how quickly um, traffic can get from point A to point B. Um, we are here to save lives and we will continue to talk about these safety items and in our investigations um, as long as we possibly can to uh, get action um, implemented on, on our safety items and our safety recommendations. So again, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. Thank you, Stephanie, for always being a fantastic co-host for me. And thank you, James Anderson, for being a great producer and making this podcast sound so great for our listeners. Thank you. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.